0: I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined, botanist and author Robin Wall Kimmerer on the wonders of the natural world and how traditional Native American creation stories still serve as a poignant reminder of how interdependent we are.
1: All of the animals tried, each in turn saying they would go get some earth, but they all failed. The loon and the sturgeon and the beaver and the otter, none of them could do it until only the little muskrat was left. He tried his best and down he went.
0: And later, our connection to the land and how it's shaped and influenced indigenous cultures for generations.
2: With land is understanding that you're tied to it. If you give a plant water and you can see it grow, you understand the connection between your actions that you take and the land itself.
0: Robin Wall Kimmerer on indigenous wisdom and environmental stewardship, and how humans, nature, and the land can live in reciprocity with each other. That's coming up on Life Examined. In many ways, our relationship to nature, to the land, to wildlife, and plant life is central to who we are as humans, even if this relationship is starting to feel a bit more foreign. And when it comes to environmental conservation, indigenous communities have for thousands of years led the way, protecting their lands, respecting wildlife, and utilizing traditional knowledge passed down through generations. So, can a greater awareness and understanding of indigenous knowledge help Western conservation efforts? Would we all benefit from a deeper spiritual and emotional connection to nature, plants, and the land? In her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, ecologist and author Robin Wall Kimmerer reflects on the knowledge she gained from her Native American roots. I reached out to Robin in advance of her upcoming talk in Santa Barbara. She'll be a guest speaker at UC Santa Barbara's Arts and Lecture Series, speaking Tuesday, November 14th at 7.30 p.m. at Campbell Hall. You can learn more about this and other events at artsandlectures.ucsb.edu. Robin Wall Kimmerer is director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment at the State University of New York, and she joins me now. Welcome.
1: Glad to be with you. Thanks for the invitation.
0: You know, Robin, as we begin our conversation and launch off here, I, I was wondering if you could tell us the, the creation myth from your tribe, which is something you talk about, you've written about. Um, it has to do with some amazing animals and creatures um, and, and Sky Woman. Would you mind being able to tell us like an abridged version of that story?
1: Yeah, Sure. The, this little snippet of a creation story is from multiple Indigenous nations. Um, it is part of the Haudenosaunee creation story, and it's also part of our Nishnabe story. And this fragment that we share has to do with, in the beginning, all life, all human people were in the sky world, where we lived just as we do here on earth today, raising our kids, raising our gardens. Um, But one of the things that was really special there is that there was the tree of life. And on that tree grew every kind of uh, plant, uh, all the berries, all the medicines, all the trees, all on one tree. And one time a um, great wind came through the sky world and felled that tree creating a hole in the sky world. And this is where the story begins when a beautiful young woman in our language, we call her Gij Kokwe, the sky woman, went over to that hole and looked down and, and was so curious to see all this just emptiness except for this shaft of light coming through from the sky world. And so as she re- leaned over the hole to see this great mystery, she began to fall. And so she reached out and, and grabbed onto that tree of life, but the branch broke off in her hand and she fell And in this story, we imagine how terrified she was leaving the only home she'd ever known. But In the darkness below her was the water world, and all those beings were assembled there. And they, too, looked up in surprise at this sudden shaft of light. And in that shaft, like a little dust moat, they could see a speck. And as it came closer, they could see that it was Sky Woman. And so the story reminds us that the geese all rose from the water and went up and caught her. They remind us that the first encounter between human people and the more than human people who were already here was one of rescue. So the story continues the way that those geese carried her down to the water and the turtle, the snapping turtle who was floating in their midst, let her step onto her, his back and said, I'll, I'll hold you while we figure out what to do and the council of all the water beings got together and and they had heard that there was um earth down below the water and that they would go get some for her so she could have a new place to live this this newcomer and this notion of the water beings diving deep to, to get earth for the new human is a common element of of many such creation stories known as the earth diver stories. And it's present in in many different cultures. But um, to make a a long and beautiful story short, um, all of the animals tried, from the strongest swimmers, um, each in turn saying they would go get some earth, but they all failed. The the loon and the sturgeon and the beaver and the otter, none of them could do it until only the little muskrat was left. And um, his relatives were pretty skeptical about his ability to do this, but he tried his best and down he went. And uh, he was gone a long time and eventually, with a little stream of bubbles, his body floated to the top of the water, and and he had given his life for this uh, new woman in the in their midst. But when they opened his paw, they saw that he had done it. There was this little nugget of earth in his paw. And uh, the story reminds us that that Sky Woman said, I know what to do with that. And so she took that little bit of earth and the sacrifice of, of the animals and she rubbed it over the back of the turtle, and began to sing and to dance with powerful, powerful gratitude for them saving her life. And um, it was in the combination of their gift and her gratitude that, that the earth on the back of the snapping turtle began to grow until it became today what we call Turtle Island or, or North America. And in reciprocity for this gift, Sky Woman gave not only her gratitude for all these other beings who saved her, but remember she had in her hand a branch of the tree of life that had all of the different plants on it. And these she scattered over the back of the turtle so that we live in gratitude and reciprocity for the gifts of of life and remember our complete dependence upon them. Mm.
0: Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It, it's, it's a story that is just so fully textured and rich and full of symbolism. And th- there was this one line you used that I loved. You said, a story of rescue. And I, I found that very moving. Would, could you say a little bit more about how it's a story of rescue?
1: Well, yes, um, it is that reminder that human beings are newcomers here to to this earth, and that our existence is entirely dependent upon the gifts of the other beings who are already here. And so, that notion of rescue—that they they caught her in the air and brought her to safety—is um, is a poignant reminder of our dependence on. The, the rest of of the earth we're often uh, told that that uh, that we are we are the the new ones um, and that we have to learn from and express our gratitude and reciprocity to all of the rest of creation who makes our life possible and of course ecologically that's absolutely true right every morsel of food we put in our mouths comes from the gifts of, of other beings. Every breath we take, every drink of water that we come from are not things that we have made, but that the, the rest of the living world has made. So that that's a, a powerful story to remind us that that we are not the masters of the universe, that, that, that we are um, interdependent with all the other life
0: and how could one not love the muskrat in this story right this creature we maybe take for granted that we wouldn't think oh whatever it's it's just a small small creature but there was something so kind of beautiful and heartbreaking about the sacrifice though of a creature too um the the yearning to help to want to provide that that also is very touching isn't it in that story
1: Oh, absolutely. And it is the foundation of many of our worldview elements that are all about kinship, that we care for each other and love each other as family um, and sacrifice for each other as family. It's a real antidote to this notion of Human exceptionalism, isn't it? That, you know, we humans are somehow at the top of this biological pyramid and in charge of the world. Um, It is a very active um, uh, resistance to that kind of thinking. Mm.
0: And I feel that as, as, as humans, we're very attracted to like the really big, flashy, powerful animals. For example, if you go on a, on a, a tour in, you know, in Africa, everybody just wants to see the lions. Those are the big attraction. And there's all this anxiety about whether you see them or not. But I think that one thing you write so beautifully about, and maybe this story is so beautiful as well, is that our our existence is dependent upon these much smaller, humbler creatures that we are slowly in many ways wiping out. Let's think of the bees, for example, and how they are so crucial to our existence as well, That that I think we often overlook those kind of smaller but very important species around us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we have such a bias toward the what we think of as the big and powerful. But bees and the moss in a sidewalk crack—they are every bit as powerful. And you know, I'm I'm really glad that you use the word humble, um, because within. The indigenous worldview—I should say—within the Potawatomi view worldview, humility is a, a cardinal virtue. Um, the, the word "ed um celebrates humility, not in a like a self-effacing meekness kind of humility, mm. but the meaning to that word is that I am not more important than you are that's what that means is is it 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 disrupts that illusion that humans are more important than other beings and 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 this state of of humility is to remind us that we are not and I like to turn that that formulation around to say, well, humans think pretty highly of themselves, right? As we should, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then we say, well, but I am not more important than you. And you know what that means? That you are very important. You the the bee. You the grasshopper. You the grass um, are are also very very important. So it 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 makes room for. All beings, not just for the the charismatic megafauna um, that that we tend to gravitate toward.
0: Yeah, I, I wonder in an in indigenous culture where the story of if this exists, kind of the story of of man's ego comes from, right? Because I, I you've talked about this before that there were the vast periods of human on earth there actually was perhaps a real sense of equilibrium and balance but certainly that this moment we live in is wildly out of whack i what what's the perspective you would understand from your tradition as to maybe how we got
2: there
1: i i personally don't know if teachings in my own tradition that tell us about how we got there Hmm. rather it tells us how we Ought to be. So, how did it get turned upside down? Well, colonization. The colonization that sought to replace this worldview of interdependence, humility, and kinship was um, violently um, imposed upon um, indigenous peoples with the goal of wiping out that way of thinking. And the very anthropocentric, egocentric worldview. I really put at at the foot of of Western religions Hmm. that say that human people are are special and and elevated above all other beings. Those are some of the fundamental tenets of of Western um, traditions, right, and are are, are quite foreign to the, the traditions that I'm familiar with.
0: Hmm. In a sense, I, I'd imagine in that period of colonization that, therefore, the, the philosophy and spirituality of of the indigenous tribes would have been almost a threat. Then, right, this worldview was almost dangerous to colonization or capital, or you know, to capitalism. It,
1: oh, I, absolutely, absolutely. I sometimes think about what was so dangerous in our. In our religion, in our language, in our way of being, that the, the department of war was in charge of of, of assimilation of, hmm. of, of indigenous children through the brutal boarding schools, for example, all with an eye to eradicate this way of thinking. Well, of course, you know, would it be would manifest destiny would um, even be possible if you viewed the all the other beings as your relatives that they had a say in the way the story should unfold on, on earth. Um, No, those colonization and, and, and violent assimilation were expressly designed to eliminate this worldview of, of humility and kinship with the natural world in order to facilitate um, converting the living world into natural resources and commodities.
0: You had this incredible love of plants and wanting to go study plants and become a botanist. What? Why did you feel that starting there?
1: I would say I have an affinity for plants, and the plants have an affinity for me. Mm. Um, they, mm-hmm. We we just connected from from the earliest time, and I came to understand. Well, how did my ancestors? learn this way of being well they learned it from the land in part and that maybe i could learn it from the land too and so in that way connection with 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 the land became for me my my um my teacher and uh the plants Chief among them, I was so lucky to grow up um, in the out of doors with parents who were wonderful naturalists and and to help helped me learn and to see those connections between um, land and 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 culture. And so I'm immensely grateful for for them for supporting me on on that path and and certainly deeply grateful for. The culture bearers who were part of holding on to language and story and songs and ceremonies, all those those pieces that um, were taken from us, um, they were warriors, incredible protectors for that knowledge. And so when the time was right, they were able to, to share it with very beginning learners like me and so many others.
0: Mm. Were there any plants in particular or or questions you found yourself asking at at a younger age when you talk about this love of the plants and the way that they loved you back? Like what what are some of the the memories or stories that come to mind?
1: You know, I'm 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 thinking about the endless delight in meeting new plants as mm. I I won't say I was doing scientific investigations. I was just being a kid, Uh wandering around in the woods and turning over logs and seeing who lives there. But I can remember so many plants the first time I saw them. I think, are you kidding me? A being who's making their life like this? That's so amazing. So I've always been um, just in love with plants' creativity at finding out their their ways of of living what you know now as a ecologist I would call their amazing adaptations Um, and thinking about them as as teachers and that they were problem solvers and and so I often look to them to think well how would I solve another problem plants you're pretty good at problem solving and in in that way they really became my teachers i suppose rather famously now because it's a story i've told so often um among the plants that have played the perhaps largest role in my um thinking where the the famous combination of of canada goldenrod and and new england asters Mm. um these beautiful purple and and gold beings who um celebrate in september and just make this outrageous uh carpet of color and um because those plants bloom in September, which is when my birthday is, I had a special affinity for them that oh you know they're they're decorating just for me um in that mm. in that childlike way of thinking. But what I really got very interested in is their, stunning beauty of those two colors together because they share ecological characteristics, um, but they, they don't have to grow intermingled with one another and yet they do. Um, So the question of the meaning of beauty came to me quite early of why are they beautiful? Why is the world beautiful in its arrangement. And I mean that not only aesthetically in the gold and the purple and being so beautiful, but how does it work? It is as if um, every every being has their place and their set of relationships that connect them to everyone else. The more I learned about this, um, the more uh, deeply entranced and curious I became. And that's what really drove me not only to study botany, but to study plant ecology, um, which is of course, the study of relationships Mm. among um, plants and, and both the physical and the, uh, uh, the biotic uh, environments as well.
0: And I know the the question that was so crucial to you is, as you've just named it, is, you know, why is the world beautiful? And I know that you would eventually go to university, end up in, you know, botany classes, but you had folks that said, you know, you should go become an artist. That, that, this is the realm of art, not science to answer this question, right?
1: It's true. It's true. What I thought were the the most important questions in 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 botany and plant ecology, I was I was pretty um, quickly those questions were dismissed um, because in so much of higher education in science, the the focus is on structure and function and physiology and mechanism, and the questions are. How does it work? Hmm. Not why is it so beautiful? Um, so, I- admittedly, uh, I I went into botanical sciences with a quite different worldview than was being taught at at, at the university, and that that certainly created a a kind of um, hurdle for me and having to um, reframe my thinking but i did because i wanted to know everything i could possibly learn about plants i felt such a deep allegiance to them um this wasn't entirely what i wanted to know but it it became the building blocks for doing good ecology mm. you know you really you really do have to understand the the structure and the function. You have to understand the pieces before you can put them together in this beautiful um, array that is ecology. So it was a challenge for my way of thinking, for sure. And that reductionist objectification of of the living world um, was was a challenge. Um, But I also was able to turned that knowledge toward the questions that were of interest to me.
0: Mm. Moss, I know you find particularly beautiful. Why why moss?
1: <laughs> oh my beloved little mosses. Um well they are beautiful and 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 that is there's always a draw for me. You know, the first time I actually resisted studying mosses at all, I had taken every single botany class that was available except the moss class. And I thought, how interesting could green film on rocks be, really? Um, But I took the class and it was love at first sight. Mm. The first time I really stopped to look and put a little hand lens on those mosses and saw this, exquisite little forest right there at your fingertips um i was hooked um and so what is it i love about them yes their their beauty yes the deep curiosity of how does a forest work when the trees are only a centimeter tall as is mm. true in a in a moss forest i was deeply interested in the At at that time, I was studying forest ecology and really interested in the principles of relationship that knit a forest together. And then when I encountered moss forests, I wanted to know whether those same beauty of relationships that operated at a forest scale operated at a moss scale. So that was one of the, the motivations for me to see what are the transcendent principles that that structure plant communities, whether they're big or, or, or little. And you know, as I came to study mosses and spend so much time in their in their company and, and learning from them, I was um really struck, you know, this comes back to our conversation about humility, about how humble these little beings are. And the secrets in a way that they hold, because mosses are among the oldest plants on the planet. They have seen every single climate change that has ever happened since plants came onto the land. Um, And they're still here and they're so abundant and there's so many different kinds. Um, They're very, very successful beings in longevity in adaptability, in biodiversity, in their geographic range. They're so successful, but in a completely different way than big, powerful, um, charismatic megaflora, if you will. Mm. Um, they, they really provide us a window into other ways of thinking about what does it mean to be successful? Not by being dominant and controlling, but by having longevity and relationships and giving more than you take and making very few demands on, on on the on the earth around you. So they're they in a way mirror some of the worldview philosophies around humility and um and mutual care that are interesting to me philosophically there's a way in which mosses model that
0: and it's so important i think some of the words that that you use and that i know that are are just intertwined into indigenous language which is um not looking not using the word it to describe things like trees and plants um it's interesting we had another a, a gentleman who studies animals, Carl Safina, and he said his biggest project is when he refers to animals is to stop calling them it, because it's not an it, it's a being, it's a sentient creature. And But that's an idea that's existed almost for thousands of years in, in indigenous cultures. Isn't
1: that correct? Oh, absolutely. And um, I so respect Carl Safina's work and, and, uh, and I'm, I'm, feel absolutely in 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 harmony with that idea. I too have been working to try to obliterate it from our language in in reference to other beings and in fact propose some new pronouns that we could use so that we don't have to say it. But to get to the to the heart of your question, this is absolutely grounded in. The indigenous worldview, ad, absolutely grounded in the creation story that mm. we began with, right? It is we don't look at those other beings as 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 just ecosystem entities or or natural objects, right? Um, we understand them as relatives, as as family members, as as persons. And when I say persons, I'm not anthropomorphizing. I'm not saying that that muskrat or that snapping turtle is like a human person, no, they're like a turtle person, you Mm. know, they're, they're their own kind of person with their own knowledge and responsibilities and intentions in, in, in the world. So yes, this, this, this notion of understanding the personhood of living beings is, is really, Important and of course has ramifications at a at a much larger scale too, in um, movement toward things like the rights of nature um, that are grounded in that idea of the personhood of of living beings. So again, we see from the the microcosm to the of 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 whether we're going to say it about a living being all the way to um, new systems of jurisprudence at a global scale. Um, That's the resonance of that idea of the animacy and the personhood of all living beings.
0: Mm. Yes, and I, I know this is a really big question, but these ideas are, in my opinion, Becoming slowly more infused back into this Western world, and, and it seems like this is the time to do it. Words like reciprocity have to become more more vital and valuable and essential to who we are. Like, how do we kind of begin to move these ideas more into the way that we live and think about our place and our our relationship with the world? Because I, I, I can't forget. There's this amazing story. It's in the beginning of Braiding Sweetgrass. You you know you asked a bunch of students can you think of one positive or beneficial relationship between humans and the earth? And and they couldn't come up with a single answer or a single yes. And so I'm sitting with you here trying to ask, how do we move these ideas and this, this um, relationship to language into more of the world around us?
1: Well, I think one of the places we begin is with combating the erasure of these ideas. Hmm. So often in my own communities with, with my own students, um, I have this sense that they have been so fully inculcated with the Western worldview that they don't even know that there are, are alternatives to itting the world. Let's Mm. say Um, they don't even know. Um, So complete has been the, the, the erasure. So as an act of, of, of resistance surfacing indigenous worldview surf surfacing these other ways of thinking about the world other than human exceptionalism um is where it starts and what i find is when i talk to students about saying well you could think about land in the western framework of natural resources capital property That's the default meaning of land, right? But what if, what if you imagined yourself into the space of the ancient indigenous worldview where the land is your relative, the land is your teacher, the land is your healer, the land is your responsibility, not your rights. Um, And when you share with with folks, this possibility of thinking differently about our relationship to the living world that isn't objectification. It's like this wonderful light goes off with students and say, wait, I could think that? That's a possibility. Um, So that's where it starts. I think it starts with storytelling that propels imagination of another way of being. And when people see it and participate in it, they think, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to live in a world full of relatives. I'm not particularly interested in living in a commodity or a warehouse full of commodities.
0: Mm. To enter the political sphere here, just for a second, that there still needs to be more um, atonement for what's happened over the years to Native Americans. There needs to be more honoring what has happened. You know, it was interesting. I, you know, having been to Berlin recently, I mean, there are incredible monuments at this point to what happened in the atrocities of World War II. I think that country has a lot of problems, but I think they have also tried to publicly own a lot of it. And I wonder where you sit and where your heart sits now, knowing that there's still that history around us
1: oh yeah we are we are not to that place yet of, mm. of public recognition of the terrible tragedies and and mistakes shall we say that were made um and i am a really big supporter of the notion of of mistake monuments we have to commemorate these horrible things that we have done in the past and said oh we have to learn from that how do we learn from that if we don't have it present in our in our public spaces and in our education so we've got a long way to go simply to face up to that history let alone to make reparations and i think we are increasingly moving toward the Act of imagining what reparations would look like through mm. the land back movement, through thinking about how do we um, hold to account the fact that most of the public lands in this country, all of the public lands in this country were were taken from Indigenous peoples, and how do we heal that? Mm. How do we how do we do justice again through land returns? Um, is 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 one of the most important ways that that, that can, can happen.
0: It's been such a wonderful honor to be joined by Robin Wall Kimmerer, botanist and author. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your your wisdom and the wisdom of your tradition and tribe. We really appreciate the time.
1: Thank you so much for listening.
0: And once again, Robin will be speaking at UC Santa Barbara's Arts and Lecture Series Tuesday evening, November 14th at 7.30 p.m. Still to come, the integral nature of the land, how land informs and influences everything from art to languages in Indigenous cultures. And a reminder, you can connect with us on Facebook. There's a link at kcrw.com lifeexamined, or you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastian, where you'll also find exclusive weekly videos with more Life Examined content. We'll be back after this short break. Stay close. This is KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Robin Wall Kimmerer talk about why it's important not to erase the past when it comes to the history of stolen Native American lands. So why has the concept of land ownership been misunderstood and disrespected? Our next guest says the way Native people view land varies from tribe to tribe, but it's founded on a fundamental understanding of living in reciprocity. Mashana Goman is professor of gender studies and American Indian studies at UCLA, and she joins me now. Welcome.
2: It's so nice to be here.
0: How do we think about land ownership or territories from the perspective of indigenous cultures in the United States or from or from the tribe from which you descend? Where, Where does your mind go when we begin to tackle this big subject?
2: Well, first I'll begin in Indigenous Protocols, which is just to introduce myself as Mishana Goman of Tonawanda, Band of Seneca, what people now know as Western New York. And I speak to you today from Tawangar, which is the land of the gabrielino Tamva and uh, just at UCLA, that's where I work and live, and we acknowledge uh, we acknowledge the Tamva daily there.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. So... <sighs> How do we how do we begin to approach questions of of land and ownership or or even the right words for for, let's say, uh, your your tribal band?
2: We start with that recognition that I just did. But we also I think there's a lot of misconceptions about Indians and land, and this a lot of my work is around this. Uh, the fact that, Uh, There's this common misconception that Indians didn't own land is something that stems from our kind of political roots of American political roots, but not that of Indigenous peoples. Uh, We actually did have territories. We had marketplaces. We had meeting places that were... Uh, shared pieces of land that were connected. We had hunting spots and fishing spots. And of course, this the ways that Native people think of land varies from tribe to tribe. There's over 574 recognized tribes in the United States right now. Uh, there's many, many more unrecognized tribes, especially in California where right. we're, I'm speaking from. Um, the treaty system, because California came in late into um, the domestic space of the nation, uh, resulted in lost treaties and lost lands and things like that. So the California genocide in California was really intense in mm-hmm. terms of that land grab that happened after California became part of the U.S. in the 1850s. So there's a particular way that different people think of different lands. In Los Angeles, for instance, the Tonva organized themselves by various villages because there was, uh, you know, the land was rich with food and resources, etc. cetera. Um, where, where I am from, we had larger organized villages and that was because it took a lot of people to uh, work the land and to gather and hunt. And uh, that was necessary to live together in larger communities. So in some ways the land kind of defines how we interact as as people with the land mm-hmm. um, and there's a particular element there that influences also where people live or that kind of place space that can inform people it can inform their aesthetics it can inform their arts and it can inform their songs and it informs their languages the tie between languages and land is is really where you get this deep knowledge or what we call traditional ecological knowledge hmm. of how the land uh, can live in reciprocity with with a certain group of people. But again, that depends on where the tribe would be located. Right. Uh, for instance, um, in, on the East Coast, where, where I'm from, there's, uh, we organize our communities by clans And those clans are passed down through the mother, and those clans are deeply tied to the land and the ways that they're named. Uh, For instance, my family is the Hawk Clan, and uh, that's deeply tied to kind of the organizing principles that we use as well.
0: You mentioned the word reciprocity, which seems really important in this conversation, and, and this connection between language and the land. Can you go a little bit further into that?
2: Well, when we when we talk a lot with elders, and we talk talk a lot um, at UCLA with the local communities here, for instance, we talk about reciprocity. Craig Torres is one of the cultural educators at the Tamva, and he talks about maha, which is a gifting or a swapping of knowledges. And there's a particular way reciprocity with land is understanding that you're tied to it. Your whole health system is tied to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, He has these wonderful uh, teaching guides, for instance, with, with young people starting early on. Um, a lot of times people get their native history in fourth grade, but uh, Craig Torres was like, we need to teach them first what's at stake in that, the land right. principles. And part of that is teaching reciprocity. If you give a plant water, just say one, you know, a kid growing up with one plant and they can see it grow, but there's reciprocity between you and the plant. You have to water it, you have to take care of it, you have to make sure it has sun and soil. Uh, There's a, that's a particular form of reciprocity in order to begin to understand the connection between your actions that you take and the land itself. And so, and I think native people have an amazing amount of knowledge to offer in terms of teaching reciprocity, but also relationality to the land. So say we have an elderberry tree, which is is something that people in California have used for a long time for our health in that particular kind of care that's related to the deer, it's related to it, it, it's related to medicines that we use. It's related to our just ingesting or feeding us or giving us sustenance. There's all sorts of ways that that tree can be in reciprocity. But we also have to make sure that we harvest at the right time. We gather and we do things correctly as well with a with intent. In my community, we call it kind of you have to do things with intent. Mm.
0: And this makes me think so much about the climate struggles that we're in, about ecological health, and about just the importance and the depth and the wisdom of some of these traditions when it comes to uh, understanding the reciprocity of our relationship with the land, no?
2: Oh, yes. We have in, in my community in Haudenosaunee Confederacy, before we begin any programming or any kind of events, we start with a Thanksgiving address. And the Thanksgiving address goes from the teachers to the medicine people to all the various kinds of plants, the ones that give us sustenance again, but the ones that give us medicines. We go all the way to the the insects, the and then the deer. And we have we name all of these different categories in our Thanksgiving address. And that's mm. the words that come before all else. Because you have to be thankful for that sort of that, that sort of land that gives you who you are as a being. And in in that respect, if you can acknowledge the connection, not just between yourself, but the animals and the plants and, and how that sustains a whole world system, then you will have a different idea than of how to, how to enter into a conversation as human beings. Mm. And the Thanksgiving address, I highly suggest, it's just the most beautiful piece of, uh, it's, 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 it's just the most beautiful way to start things off with a good mind and with a good intention. And you're doing it because you're taking care of, all of those things around you hmm. and uh chief warren Lyons uh has just the most beautiful thanksgiving address that that you can watch and it's pretty ubiquitous so mm. you can find it online uh, so
0: w- within these important concepts how would your tribe on the east coast then think about ownership of land is that even the right word to use here the idea that one person can own the land do what they will with the land
2: like i said there is an idea of territory that people had uh, you took care of the territory that you lived in. Mm. And uh, that that's very important. There are also meeting places. A lot of the cities in the United States are at these meeting places. Chicago was a huge meeting place mm. for Anishinaabe people and also Haudenosaunee people. It was a a place that, that we met to market or to trade goods or, you know, just interact with each other. Albuquerque is another meeting place for Southwest tribes. So there, there are many, many, many places that were these meeting places where people would work. But there were territories that, that existed. Also, people recognized whose territory you were in. It was acknowledged when Indians traveled from place to place, which that sometimes I, I don't think people realize that the US, all the roads that we have where the railroad was built, those are travel routes that already existed. Mm, wow. So there was an idea of territory or whose territory you were in and, and how that territory related to them as a as a people. Uh, with locking kind of ideas of labor, you work the land to be to become kind of a good citizen of the US, right? Like Working the land means you have ownership and property. It becomes property in that sort of way under individual ownership. Now, the idea of individual ownership linked to property comes about through colonization. We don't get there until actually the colonization of the US and Africa and other places around the world. It brings into concept this idea of land as property in, as it travels through colonial circles. To be clear, there's a particular way are small patches of land that we have left out of these expansive areas across the United States. Those small patches of land, we do have to think of that as important territory. There's currently a movement called, uh, done by the, done by young people um, in very important ways, but a movement called Land Back, hashtag Land Back. And the Land Back movement is actually gaining traction. Tribes through various mechanisms are a- able to buy back their land now and these important sites to protect them. It's, it's sad to have to buy back your land when it was particularly stolen in the first place. Mm. And uh, it, it you know it's it's a very complicated process but people a lot of people don't actually want to buy land they don't believe buying land through uh kind of the processes of capitalism is an appropriate thing to do, but then under those auspices, people do what they have to do to survive. So buying land back, keeping it protected becomes really, really important, or fighting for it on the national parks. A lot of the national parks are built on sites that uh, native people hold sacred. So when you have something like Oak Creek Flats in Arizona that was recently sold to the Rio Tinto uh, mining company, that threatens that particular form of land. Tribes, however, can act with sovereignty that they have in the U.S. to try to protect those sites. So you see a lot of pairing up also with tribes lately around protecting um, land sites and public park sites that had a lot threatening them in the last four years. Right, right, right. As they were sold to mining companies and sold off. Uh, But protecting those sites becomes really important You have to, in that way, fall into working with the settler colonial system that demands you have a right over land, a dominion over land, versus what my uncle always told me is, you don't protect land sovereignty, land protects your sovereignty as a human being.
0: I have noticed that there is this growing trend in the same way that you began our interview today about people starting to recognize the traditional territories of different tribes. Is that something that you would like to see continue?
2: I see it as a land introduction, and I've talked about this recently in other ways because there is some criticism about land acknowledgement. Okay, you acknowledge the land, but you're not giving it back, right? Mm. Or you acknowledge the land, but you're still going to mine it or treat it badly, right? Uh, There becomes a particular aspect of that, but if done rightly, a land acknowledgement can become a land introduction. It can make you rethink those geographies, reorientate you towards your own life and your own actions that you take in life. And that's kind of the goal. It's indigenous protocol. It has been since time immemorial, since well before Europeans arrived, to introduce yourself before you go into a territory, right? Mm. To introduce yourself and express what your intentions are. And in some ways that's what a land acknowledgment can do, it can help you express your intentions, but there has to be action that's taken after those intentions as well.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the notion of land as being sacred and what that means for certain tribes? I it seems like this is this is an important distinction from from a western perspective where that doesn't seem as present in the US. I don't
2: Land is not to Indian in this kind of equal equation, right? And I think sometimes some of the work that was done in the 1970s around the environmental movement or, or even today, there's a kind of nostalgic approach that can happen hmm. between Indians and land, or all Indians think all land is sacred. Right, right. Um, and that's kind of a romanticization in many ways. It was a lot of work to learn how to live off the land that the creator gave you or where the creator gave you that land. You had to, there was a lot of scientific knowledge that was passed down from generation to generation in order to learn how to farm particular plots of land or ideas of land. There's a great seed sovereignty movement now that uh, that is maintaining some of those traditions and seed plants that will i think save us all in terms of climate change these seed sovereignty projects because native people understand the changing climate over a longer duration of time Hmm. um and it's relatively recently quite honestly that uh Western forms of science have even seen all land and water as connected, Mm -hmm. whereas it was part of the very philosophies of understanding how land operates for many Native people. So we have sacred spaces, yes, but I think all land is sacred and all land should be lived with in reciprocity right? Because there's not divisions. uh, And that's where where some people, particularly in in federal Indian law, where, where things get parsed out. It's not like you can put a border around a sacred space and it won't be affected, right? Air connects us all, for instance. The wind connects us all. Water and the aquifers are connected in these large living ecosystems. And this is knowledge that is embedded often in how Native people conceive of farming or conceive of uh, conceive of living in their particular spaces. You can see it in the artwork that people do. You can see it, um, you can just see it in, the, in all the kind of practices of organizing, how important that is as land and water, as interconnected space.
0: Well, Mishana Goman, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate this.
2: You're welcome.
0: Mashana Goman is professor of gender studies and American Indian studies at UCLA. That's it for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. You can find our archive at kcrw.com slash life examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you again next week. Take care.